Hey there. Before we get started, one really important housekeeping note. This show is now officially called Security Sandbox, but you can still find all the show information on hackerculture.fm. As we work on new shows, you can find that information on the website as well. You're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this episode, Frank Wang joins me to talk about the venture capital world of cybersecurity. Between shows like Silicon Valley and announcements for a billion dollar valuation of tech companies, venture capital can seem like a mystery. There are incubators and accelerators like Y Combinator that are competitive, but they'll guide your startup in the right direction. But while we've seen our fair share of Facebooks and Googles, many cybersecurity companies are still in their infancy. Some of them have even joined the show to talk about their upstarts and growing pains. This week, I was interested in learning about the other side. What do venture capitalists specializing in cybersecurity companies really think? What makes them invest? How much technical know-how do they actually need? Frank Wang is an investor at Dell Technologies Capital, where he looks to invest in early-stage security and enterprise infrastructure companies. But before that, he was deep into academia. And during his time working towards his PhD, he co-founded Cybersecurity Factory, a summer incubator that would mentor four security startups over the course of 10 weeks. On this episode, we talk about starting the factory, where those companies are now, and being a security venture capitalist. Uh, Frank Wang, welcome to the show. Cool, yeah. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. So you are a principal VC at Dell Technologies Capital. Um, what does your yes. day-to-day work look like? Ooh, it's very mixed. I think it really depends on the day. So usually, I think this is typical of kind of most VCs. It's there, there's no typical day other than the fact that your day is probably full of meetings. And so, you know, I think typically on Mondays, uh, every VC partnership has you know, of substantial size, like if you have six, seven, or eight partners, you have um, what we call kind of partner meeting. And so in partner meeting, everyone kind of discusses, you know, the deals on their mind, what they're seeing. Um, Sometimes there's administrative stuff. It's kind of just a way to get all the partners together and on the same page and kind of everyone in sync. And so usually that takes almost all of Monday. Um, and so usually kind of that's what people spend, most partnerships spend Monday doing. And we're no, we're no different. I mean, I think we have, um, you know, eight investing partners spread across uh, Palo Alto, Boston, and Israel. And so it's kind of a good way to say, hey, here are the companies we've talked to last week. Here are the companies top of mind that we want to potentially invest in. Here are companies we're invested in and updates from them. And, you know, we'll sometimes talk about administrative stuff and in kind of the partnerships. Things like, hey, like there's this event, who wants to go? Kind of just, you know, basic stuff to get everyone in sync. And so that's usually all Monday. So Tuesday to Friday, you know, different partners have different workflows. So um, for me, I usually spend, um, since I'm in California, we have this kind of divide between San Francisco and South Bay. So I spend Tuesday and Wednesday in, in South Bay kind of talking to a mixture of people, either new companies, uh, current companies, and kind of developing um, my my network in the sense, both with other VCs and most importantly with you know potential industry experts. So I spend some time with you know for security, I spend a lot of time with security executives who are making security decisions um, for their organization um, and kind of what products they want to buy, 
what is top of mind for them. So it's kind of important for me to kind of stay up to date on what kind of the industry is seeing because a lot of times what VCs are doing are just looking for companies, but they're not necessarily kind of keeping in touch like who are the customers for those companies, right? And I think another big thing is um, same time also looking at kind of the future of technology because we're investing five to 10 years out. So, you know, spending a lot of time, uh, you know, with, with professors or PhD students, um, trying to kind of get a good pulse on, hey, like, what should I be looking out for? And so I think it's really like a volume game there. Um, and then I think the third thing is always, you know, talking with executives and other kind of established security companies like Palo Alto Networks or Rapid7 or Tenable, um, just getting to know those people because they kind of have a very different perspective on the industry. I think, you know, the way you think about it is the goal of every day is like, hey, have these meetings, you know, try to learn more about the industry. And, you know, you can't think of everything, but it's important to kind of just get as many perspectives as possible and then try to kind of sort through them. But, you know, kind of most of my day is spent um, Tuesday through Friday, just, you know, meeting with people, having lunches, uh, going to events, just to kind of like, I think, get information, I think is the correct way to describe it. Um, can you share a little bit about how those perspectives differ uh, between like someone who's an executive at a company versus someone who is a PhD student at like uh, Stanford or MIT working on like security research? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So if you run a security company, uh, your goal is to sell a product to someone else. So you're always in the mindset, hey, how do I you know, increase my customer base? How do I increase my revenue? How do I increase my profit? It's very kind of operation-based, but also I think the difference is that it's very focused on kind of developing a product that your customers want and increasing the number of customers, right? Because your goal is eventually to increase your revenue and increase your bottom line and increase your thought leadership in the space um, so that, you know, people come to you, right? Like there's so many security products, like how am I, you know, why am I a product someone wants to buy? Um, and wh- why trust me, right? And I think a lot of that is, you know, very similar to kind of like what a um, what companies do to attract consumers. So I think that's on the security company side. I think, you know, being a CISO at a company, I think the motions are very different because you're now responsible for kind of the security health of your company. So, uh, but the difference is you do a lot of buying. So you go out and you're kind of always trying to figure out, hey, you know, should I be building this on my own or do I need to buy it? How does this fit into my broader security strategy? So that's a very different motion, right? Because you're worried about kind of you know, 10 or 15 security problems at one time. Of course, there might be 100 problems, but, you know, you want to focus on kind of executing on 10 to 15 security problems and fixing them up so that you can go to the next priority. So a lot of that is spent to kind of figure out, hey, what are my needs? Um, can I fulfill those needs internally or do I need to go out? And how do those needs kind of fit into the broader infrastructure picture? Um, so that's always interesting. Um, and then I think the PhD student side is kind of, or, you know, professor side is more of a, there's less of a business um, aspect. There's more of a technical aspect. Hey, how do I solve a technical problem in an, in an interesting way that no one has solved and have to explain why this problem matters to people, right? But there's less of a focus on kind of generating revenue. A lot of it is kind of, how do I, build interesting technologies. Um, whereas I think the other two, the CISO and the security exam, is how do I build interesting products? So I think there's kind of a difference between between those two. But, you know, everyone kind of has their different role. Um, and that's kind of how I kind of differentiate the three, at least in my mind. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I believe that there's also a distinction between what you do. I think you count as a corporate VC uh, versus like there's like a traditional VC, which is I think what we uh, think about when we think of a VC. Uh, is that true? Is there a distinction there? Um, there are distinctions, but I think the question a lot of times is um, it's around relevant distinctions, right? And so I think when you look at just specifically Dell Technologies Capital, um, we have the resources and more of a traditional VC is uh, how we want to say it. And there's a lot of differences in traditional VCs. Like some people only follow rounds, some people only lead rounds, some people do minority investment, some people invest earlier, some people invest later, some people do consumer, some people do enterprise infrastructure. I think it's, you know, there's just so many flavors and um, just in the VC world in general now um, that it, it's kind of hard to kind of bucket as traditional VC and corporate VC. I think, you know, what I bucketed into is, hey, do you lead rounds and do you do early or late and kind of like what else, what value do you bring to the table, right? I think for us, uh, as a corporate, specifically us, we're very similar to actually Google Ventures or GB um, in the sense that uh, we lead rounds early on in a company. So seed, series A, series B. We only do enterprise infrastructure and security. The only corporate aspect of us is that, you know, we are employees of Dell Technologies and uh, we invest off the balance sheet so we don't have to raise a fund. Um, but we don't kind of have the other restrictions of a traditional corporate VC in the sense that we don't need a strategic alignment to invest. We invest for financial gain, which is very similar to a traditional VC. Uh, but and we also, since we invest off the corporate balance sheet and don't have to raise funds, we can support the lifetime of a company where other VCs, traditional VCs, might have um, kind of Comp lifetime company um, investment limitations in the sense that they can only put so much into the lifetime of a company um, because of their fund size or their uh, limited partner agreement. We don't have all that. And, you know, some VCs have ownership targets. We don't, but, you know, we want to lead round. So I think out of the past, maybe um, past deals we've done in the last two years, I would say we've led 80% of them. And so, um, and, you know, we'll always follow up. And I think in that sense, you know, we have kind of the benefits of a traditional VC, like what you think of like an Excel or Lightspeed or a Dresen. In addition, we have kind of the market context and access uh, to Dell Technologies, which actually includes Dell, Dell EMC, VMware, RSA, SecureWorks, um, Pivotal, uh, which also have huge security um, aspects. And we can leverage a lot of them to kind of, help build partnerships and go to market strategies um, and just have better market context and visibility and access for our founders. So you can kind of think of us as kind of the best of both worlds, I like to say. Um, so we kind of, we have that benefit. I think it's, that's kind of part of the reasons why I joined It's I think it's a very interesting and unique platform. Like, you know, it's more, everyone's trying to become more founder focused. I think we can kind of provide a lot more value to a founder outside of just providing capital and you know ourselves as a partnership mm -hmm. and so speaking of how you got involved with uh dell technologies um you pre previously you were a phd student um and a lot of your work has continued to be in that security sorry uh and a lot of your work has continued to be in that security uh industry um how did you get started with dell technologies capital yeah so um 
the story behind that was uh, I had known um, the main security investor there, Deepak Jivan Kumar, um, for about four or five years back to my PhD days. So um, when I was doing my PhD, uh, I wanted to, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I went to Stanford. And when I went to MIT, uh, you know, aside from having more more extracurricular time, I wanted to spend that extracurricular time uh, being involved in startups. But, you know, Boston in 2012 was not the most vibrant startup scene. Um, and so uh, I got involved uh, with the student initiative out of General Catalyst called Rough Draft Ventures. And um, where we where the goal of that is just to fund students with interesting ideas. And back then, it was really hard to just get you know, 25K to try and try an idea. And so uh, from that, I got to know uh, Deepak, who was at General Catalyst at the time as a partner, um, and he was kind of leading their security deals, or he was kind of one of two people leading their security deals on the West Coast office. So I got to know him, and you know, I kind of brainstormed with him a lot of the ideas around um, Cybersecurity Factory, uh, which was the summer uh, incubator, summer program I started uh, initially to help PhD students um, commercialize their ideas. But ultimately, it became how do I help first-time founders uh, go to market and uh, kickstart uh, their kickstart their company in such a way that they could kind of be able to sell to customers more easily or get enough market context uh, to to narrow in on an interesting product idea. And so, uh, and then he eventually moved over uh, to Dell Technologies as a managing director. Dell Technologies Capital as a managing director. And so as a result, when I graduated, he kind of called me and said, hey, are you interested in doing VC full time? And I said, well, uh, it was never really, as a PhD student, not something I aimed to do, but sounds interesting, but I'm not sure. He said, hey, just come talk with us and, you know, learn more about the VC industry as you go through a job search. And I said, okay. And, you know, I got to know the team, like them. Uh, and so I said, hey, it seems like an interesting opportunity, interesting platform to help founders I think we can add a lot of value, really change like the VC industry, especially in security investing. And so I said, yeah, sure. I think it's, it's definitely interesting. I won't sign me up. Right. Um, so I know that back in 2017, uh, when you were still running the first uh, cybersecurity factory summer camp, um, you were still looking or you had still planned to become a professor and kind of bridge that um, in between like PhD and like uh, the industry and, I guess my qu- my question is, um, what changed in that time um, between you wanting to be a professor and then joining DTC? Yeah, so yeah, so I started the program in 2014. I think by 2017 um, to 2018, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that I, I was thinking about graduation in 2017, actually, which is very common for PhD students. They kind of think about it uh, a year in advance. Uh, and so I sp- I kind of spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, I think ultimately uh, what was the main deciding factor for me was I think my search criteria always for a job, whether it be professor or VC or industry was simple is I wanted to work on something interesting and impactful. And I want to work with a, you know, an interesting team or a very smart team. I think, you know, as a professor being part of university, and being part of, you know, DTC or any, you know, top VC firm, I think that checks the interesting team or smart team box. But I think it came down to a kind of impact and platform. I think the interesting thing is that as a VC, you actually have a fair amount of influence over the industry or you very indirectly do. 
by funding companies, and these companies are kind of really disrupting industries very directly. So, you know, they're changing markets, the security market, essentially over the time scale of months. So, and kind of like redefining thought leadership um, in, in the matter of months. And I think when you do research, um, which is kind of a different time scale, it's kind of a matter of years. And of course, kind of with both startups and research, they may or may not pan out. I think they have the same probability if you actually look at it, or very similar probabilities. So I think kind of for me, ultimately came down to, hey, I think I wanted to be involved in uh, involved in a situation or in a job where I kind of would have more immediate impact and be more kind of boots on the ground. I see. Um, and what are your relation? What's your relationship like with the companies you work with? Um, how I guess, uh, yeah. Does that question make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, usually the companies we work with are companies we've invested in or look to invest in. Um, so typically, kind of the you know the real relationship starts after we invest. We typically take a board seat, so we're pretty active board members, um, and we we kind of when. A lot of companies actually ask us this question. So what would be like post-funding? And we say, hey, you know, we will do anything that you think we can help with. And if it's something that you think will take you a long time or it will be good for you to get help, shoot us an email and we can see if it's something we can help with. And don't be shy to kind of send us an email. And so what I mean by that, that could be a large range of things. I think a lot of times... um, Companies will say, hey, uh, do you know any customers? And I said, hey, sure, like I'll introduce you to a couple of these customers. And that's kind of a simple one. Um, and I think a lot of companies ask that of their VC firms. Another thing is saying, hey, we're in uh, negotiations with this company. Um, do you know the head of security there? And I would say, yeah, actually I do. Um, they're like, can you put in a good word for me? Or kind of, you know, can you back channel and figure out uh, kind of what they're thinking about about us just so we can get kind of a more straightforward answer. And I said, sure, because, you know, VCs are more of a neutral source rather than it, a neutral third-party remediator rather than kind of company talking to uh, kind of a, one company talking to another about buying a product, right? And so, um, and we can kind of have longer discussions with them. Um, and so that's kind of one thing we do. So I kind of recently just did that for a company, for one of our companies who said, Hey, you know, we're in the, uh, POC process, uh, and we're in the competition. Can you kind of like figure out where their head is at? I said, sure. And you know, that's sometimes a lot of times very helpful for, for companies. Um, another thing is around hiring. So a lot of times companies want to hire someone and they want to know, um, why we chose to invest in them or, you know, try to help us sell that person on joining the company. So uh, a lot of times we'll introduce people come to us. Also a lot of, you know, former execs come to us saying, Hey, we know you invest in interesting companies. Can you uh, refer us to a couple of ones where you think we're a good fit? Because, you know, we have a broader portfolio than for them to go out and, for example, talk to a bunch of recruiters. Um, And then there are kind of also very simple things where, you know, we as investors will kind of like show up to events, you know, customer events and say, hey, uh, we're investors in this company and we're just showing you how serious we are. Our goal is to make this company successful. So, you know, don't worry about signing a contract with this company because they will be around for a long haul. And, you know, we're committed to that. 
And so it's kind of small things like that where the company has an offset wants us to show up and help with morale. Kind of a bunch of things. Like, you know, we we act as basically a jack of all trades. Uh, but, you know, we're definitely... As with any VC firm, like that's why we have a partnership. Different partners are good at different things or have different networks. And we definitely don't want too much overlap. And so, for example, for me, like a big thing I help companies with is that a lot of times they want to talk to professors about their about their research and see how it might apply to their product. Like I can provide right. that access. Cool. Um, so it seems like, you know, you give a lot of advice. You, uh, you offer a lot of aid. That sounds a lot like what you have been doing um, from 2014 to 2018, which is Cybersecurity Factory. It's a 10-month uh, summer camp program for early-stage cybersecurity companies built by students. And you, throughout the 10 weeks, um, you know, they get they get money and they get, I guess, uh, training and uh, advice from, like, industry professionals. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think we, when we started the program, we looked at a bunch of, different summer programs at the time, right? So, of course, everyone knows about YC. Um, there were a bunch of other accelerators. We were trying to think, hey, how do we create a very compelling model to add value in cybersecurity specifically? I think first I think first and foremost, I think what, was, what we wanted to do was want to create a program dedicated to cybersecurity because we thought that was an area where the companies needed very targeted help. It's a different selling motion. It was kind of, and it's an industry where innovation cycles are short. So you know, for us, like first things first, we wanted to do something um, in cybersecurity. And kind of we heard feedback from a lot of the uh, founders, uh, we, both that we knew and both uh, that we kind of reached out to. Um, and what would they would expect out of a summer program, what they really wanted. I think it came down to like three things. I think first thing is that a little bit of capital helps at least get them through the summer and kind of cover business expenses. That's easy. Second, they wanted uh, mentorship um, from industry executives to kind of help them get a better sense of the market and to kind of help them increase their uh, their network. So, uh, so we did that. We got a bunch of the um, a bunch of mentors who were you know CTOs, uh, CEOs, VPs of security strategy across a wide range of security industries. Um, and I think the third thing they wanted was kind of VC help was what is it like to work with a VC? How do you help us raise money? How do we kind of set our company up to be something that is attractive for VCs to invest in? And so that, I think the goal of those uh, of our program was we would provide those three things and the company would you know, be able to have plenty of time to actually work on their product. And so we try to, we do a typical, I wanted to run it like a typical VC fund or VC firm in the sense that, hey, we gave you money. We're only going to take four teams. We're going to spend, you know, check in with you every two or three weeks, but not be too hands-on, but also to provide this platform or this environment where you could get a lot of feedback and iterate very quickly and try to, you know, get to product market fit or get to your next round of funding. Um, very quickly. Um, and so, and I think the goal as you think about with VC funding is how, when a lot of founders choose VC firms, they want to find the firm that can help accelerate their growth the most in the most efficient way. So I, that was kind of always the goal for us was how do we have the best experience where founders can maximize what they get out of kind of our network in the short period of time while still being able to kind of 
work on their product and iterate on it. I guess, where did this idea originate from? What drove you to create Cybersecurity Factory? Yeah, so this idea came from a, from a dinner conversation with, uh, with another PhD student, uh, Jean Yang, who became a CMU professor, but now is on leave to do her own startup called Akita Security. Um, so I was talking to her. I just started doing Rough Draft Ventures. And she said, hey, this seems like an interesting thing. Like, why don't more PhD students start security companies? And I said, well, I think there are a lot of factors. You know, you've been in school for a long time. You don't want to go into debt or kind of financial uncertainty by starting a company. And, you know, as a PhD student, you don't really know what it means to build a company. And you don't have the network, industry network and VC network that kind of can kick stuff off the ground very quickly. So she said, so what, what do you think we can build to um, get something like that um, and kind of help you know, ease the transition? And I said, well, I think like, you know, we need a few things. And then we went and we kind of talked to a bunch of our friends. I think it came down to kind of those three things I described. They want a little bit of money. They want um, industry expertise and mentorship and VC expertise and mentorship. And I said, she said, oh, that's all? Like, why don't we just start a summer program and try to get one VC firms in Boston on board and go from there? And I said, oh, okay, I guess. Um, and so we went out, we talked to a bunch of people, and Highland said, hey, that sounds like a great idea. You know, work with us. We'll provide you some of the resources, some space, and it, it sounds great. And so that's kind of how we got started. <laughs> uh, you know, and then uh, it kind of, we I would work on it throughout the year, and we like any program, we'd iterate on it over time. Initially, the idea was to, like I said before, to get PG students to start security companies and commercialize their research. It turned into how do we get first-time security founders to um, kind of understand go-to-market better. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long did it take from like you know your initial dinner conversation, that ideation, to like actually launching the first program? It took about, so we really started thinking about it in, I would say, January or February of that year. And then we launched the first program in June. And so, um, but I think there was kind of a lot of, I want to say, luck that came along the way. I think I had a conversation with the Highland folks um, in February, just, just out of, you know, for a different reason. I kind of brought it up casually as something on my mind, and they got very excited about it. On um, this specifically, this part, Sean Dalton got very excited about it, and he said, "Hey, that sounds great. If you can make it happen this summer, let's do it." And we said, "Okay, and like let's try our best and figure out something." And so, you know, it kind of started from there. Mm-hmm. Did you run into any like challenges along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge is always around how do you create a program that actually provides value or people find to be valuable, right? And so, but I think with all VCs, um, the, the bigger question is, how do we get high quality teams into the program? I think that's always, I think every VC is worried about finding the most interesting companies. And for us, it was always finding about the most interesting founders who wanted to be a part of our program. So, and I think kind of that's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that once you have the good founders, the mentors will have a good experience and the I know VC mentors will have a good experience. And so for us it was like in such a short period of time, how do we find good companies? 
right? And so Gene and I had to reach out deep into our academic networks and our networks in general, both to get the mentors and to get the teams. So I think, you know, we wanted both and kind of getting the timing of that was always very tricky, but, you know, we managed to pull it off. Nice. Um, so in those, uh, in those couple of years, um, how, I guess, um, of all the companies that have joined Cybersecurity Factory, uh, where are they now? Yeah, so we've had 14 companies, um, and 10 of them are still active, but I think a big part of it is a lot of them have, you know, gone on from their first idea to working on another idea also. So even though they went through Cybersecurity Factory, uh, and maybe their company didn't succeed afterwards, where many, very few companies actually do succeed if you look at kind of like seed or pre, we're really pre-seed, like two people and an idea kind of um, company, um, to very few of them have kind of a program. Having 10 of them out of the 14 still active is, I think in our minds, pretty impressive. And so actually, um, so, you know, one of the first guys on our, uh, in our program, Sergey uh, Gorbanov, he started a company initially, um, they are called Stealth Mine, and he now is actually one of the main people at a blockchain company called Algorand. So I think he, you know, learned a lot about the startup community through Cybersecurity Factory. And so, you know, we still regularly keep in touch. Um, there are a couple of companies from our second batch, one called Pixum, they're still going strong. Um, they're a phishing uh, company using a, a way to detect phishing using computer vision. Um, uh, there's another company called Huntress Labs. Uh, they're out of Baltimore, Maryland, and they're still going strong. Uh, and so they uh, are a way to kind of detect specific types of malware on Windows computers that have strong footholds um, into people's kind of boot process or um, endpoints boot process. So they're still going strong. I think they're looking to raise uh, again soon. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, Jean actually went through the program herself and now uh, raised a round, which hasn't been announced, has been undis- uh, and the investors are undisclosed. Um, uh, you know, in the last probably, so it's April, she raised it in October. And so she's still kind of continuing to work on it. So... Uh, Jean is one of the co-founders, and she started her own startup. Um, you've been working in the VC space for a while now. Uh, do you ever see yourself leaving the VC space and, with all this knowledge, um, becoming a startup founder? Uh, I don't think anytime soon. I think this is a question people ask me um, a lot. Um, and I think the th- first things first, I, you know, I never really expected to do VC. Um, and I think it's interesting. And, you know, I think maybe this is the PhD student in me. Uh, I want to kind of like do one thing and kind of like do it to the point. Uh, you know, maybe this is forever <laughs> uh, until the end of my career, uh, until the point that, you know, I become uninterested. But I think I don't know when that point is yet. I don't see kind of that in the near future for sure. I think for me, it's like I, I've always wanted to kind of, you know, I committed to doing this VC thing. It seems interesting. I never really wanted to start a company. My only alternative was kind of like doing academia or industry research for a long time. But, you know, this interesting opportunity came along. But, um, no, I, I never really thought about founding a company myself. Um, but, yeah, but I think definitely uh, I, 
as long, as far as I can tell, uh, I will be <laughs> right. doing VC for the very distant future. Okay. Uh, what do you think you love about it most? I think the most interesting thing about it is that you get to work with some of the smartest founders uh, and smartest people. I think that's always what you know was interesting to me at MIT being a PhD student. You get to work with very smart people. I think that's no different um, in VC, both both in my partnership and uh, both uh, with uh, startup founders. I think, and you learn a lot along the way. And so I think the thing I like the most is that it's always kind of a learning experience. Markets change; you have to continue learning. Um, and I think there's a very personal aspect to it that I like is that you, know, you develop these very kind of deep and personal relationships with startup founders um, because you're part of their journey and you're part of their journey to kind of achieve whatever they want to achieve. And you're kind of able to kind of be with them as part of this journey and also kind of be an important part of that journey too. Right. And I think uh, it, you realize like, as you talk to these startup founders, it's not, it's not just, someone who's invested in you. It's like you start becoming friends with them. Uh, you kind of like learn a lot more about them than just their business. And I think that's always been an interesting um, part of doing VC. It's kind of the strong personal aspect and also working with smart people. And you get to you know see the most cutting edge technologies before anyone else sees them or knows about them, right? Because these companies are so early and you kind of I've played a part in developing that cutting edge technology. So that's interesting that you say that because um, I know that from, you know, like the startup side, um, there are a number of founders that are reluctant to get VC funding or, you know, are very wary because uh, they're with the mindset of like, Hey, you're stuck with this person probably for the lifespan of your entire company. Um, Have you ever had to have any like uncomfortable conversations? Um, I think, you know, I, think that people generally group VC funding um, into kind of like one bucket. It's like they think all VCs are very similar, but I think, you know, that might've been true maybe 20 years ago. I think now there's just so many VCs trying to do so many different things. Uh, there will be probably a VC that fits into the type of relationship you want. So I think kind of a lot of times we go and talk to startup founders and say, hey, you know, you should always do what's best for your company. Um, And, you know, maybe VC funding isn't the best idea for everyone. But uh, we have some belief that VC funding will be a good bet for you. But like I always tell them, I think it really depends on the firm. And, you know, I think when we try to sell security companies, you know, we've talked to a lot of companies that are bootstrapped and have never taken a... you know, a dollar of VC funding uh, until they've reached, you know, five to $10 million of revenue. We, we've seen a lot of those companies too. And we tell them, we say, hey, like, you have to really think about like VC funding is, will change your company, right? right. In, in good ways and in potentially ways that might make you feel uncomfortable. And we usually try to have like a conversation, less so about kind of like selling them to take VC funding because we want both sides to be comfortable, right? And so we want to kind of have it to be like an open conversation and discussion saying, hey, like, are you okay with these things? Like, if not, like, what can we do different? Like, is that within the range of, you know, what we can offer you? 
If not, then, you know, this might not be a relationship that works out. I mean, I don't know if that's, I, from what I hear, you know, that's always typical of all VCs, but, uh, I think it's kind of a conversation that, you know, the founder needs to frankly have with, you know, potential VC partners. And I think, you know, with the, num- with the number of VCs out there now, I think it's important to kind of like spend more time with your VCs um, because it's kind of a relationship uh, that's going to take you a while to get out of. Right. Right. And so right. I think that's like a long answer to your question, which basically says it really depends on the VC partner. Right. And kind of whether you trust them or not. But that's kind of true of any relationship, right? And, you know, the way I think about it is, I think about it as like me going to do a PhD. It's like, do I, I don't have to do a PhD, but, you know, I have a five or six year relationship with this advisor. Um, you know, it's important to kind of spend time and have a very open conversation with them about kind of what that relationship would look like. So there's no surprises on either side. I think VCs, and startup founders both don't like surprises that are bad, <laughs> like bad <laughs> surprises, right? And I think both sides should want things that um, want to build a relationship where surprises don't exist. Right. Uh, or at least bad surprises <laughs> don't exist. Right, definitely. You've been in academia for a while. Um, so you are a very technical person at heart, I think. Um, or is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was doing... Uh, I was building large scale systems um, or building, you know, building security or adding security for large scale systems. A lot of it involved kind of pretty deep crypto um, and trying to make it scalable. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I would say I'm pretty technical. Um, do you feel that has um, aided you with throughout your work as a VC, especially as a security VC? And how has those skills, I guess, translated over? Yeah, I think the technical aspect is pretty important. Um, I think for a couple of reasons, especially in security. And so when you go talk to kind of a lot of other VCs who don't specialize in security, they think security is a pretty crowded space, but they think there's opportunity, but it's hard to understand the opportunity. I think the reason is as kind of, so, so here's kind of like to take a step back, um, in areas where there's a lot of activity, uh, ultimately what matters is, uh, technical differentiation or product differentiation. It may or may not be technical, right? But um, the way I think about it is that ultimately, why does a customer want to buy a specific security product? Because it fills their needs in some ways, some some security need in their infrastructure. And I think that's a pretty technical thing to understand, right? You have to understand kind of their infrastructure, the network, how everything is set up. And you have to figure out, like, does this product fulfill their needs and fulfill all these other technical requirements? Because ultimately, the product needs to fulfill the requirements and specifications of the customer. So, and we're talking about these are kind of products that are really kind of like detecting threats, preventing threats, remediating threats. So, they're kind of like deeply integrated within a network. So, there's some deep infrastructure integration that has to exist. Um, and so... Uh, and, you know, security, the innovation cycles are so short nowadays. You know, you see kind of changes in mindset every 18 years. And, sorry, every 18 months. Um, and the reason for that is, I think, because the threat landscape is evolving. Like, attackers are getting smarter and more sophisticated, and they have better tools. So, um, as a result, I think you have to kind of find a way to, you know, build products that are constantly combating those threats. So, kind of with that said, 
Uh, well, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, a lot of times in a crowded space like security where innovation is happening so quickly, uh, the technology matters a lot, right? Or actually the technological infrastructure or, you know, the product infrastructure or the architecture, you know, kind of things that have a technical spin to them uh, matters a lot. And kind of your understanding of that um, also matters to kind of decide whether a product is viable or not or um, can become a market leader or not. So I think the advantages that's given me is that, one, you know, when startup founders um, come in and talk about their product, it makes it easier for me to understand what's going on. And I think I can ask more targeted questions um, with kind of my technical knowledge. And I think, two, um, another benefit is that when we're doing diligence on a company, we don't have to go out and necessarily get much more technical diligence. Because I can look at a company, talk with their CTO or their head of infrastructure, and get a pretty good idea how viable their technology is or how good it is. Um, of course, you know, it's always good. You know, I have one opinion. Um, it's always good to get other opinions, but I don't have to worry about getting that opinion. I can kind of make that initial judgment call myself. And if I, you know, if I have any doubts, I can kind of go out and talk to people um, about that. But I think, you know, at least reduces one diligence item we need, we need to have. Or my ability to get conviction on the technical aspects, it's easier. It's easier for me. Um, and then I think the third thing is, uh, I think the third thing is, is that um, it allows me to have more in-depth conversations, a better understanding of the market. Because when I go out and talk to these um, security executives or executive or CISOs, like I can kind of have, I can understand their problems at a more technical level. And so it kind of allows me to have more in-depth conversations to kind of figure out what's going on and where the market is headed. Right. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure that like, you know, these relationships, uh, between like a VC and a founder, a lot of that is built on trust. Um, and I'm sure that your technical ability and being able to connect to the CTO on that level definitely helps a lot in your work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely does. I think, uh, you know, naturally we'll see founders who are more technical. I think for them, especially earlier on, what they need help with is kind of the go to market and the business aspects. But I think, you know, having kind of that relationship with, the technical founder in that way. Like, like I always say, I think it's easier to fix the business problem than fix the technology. (laughs) It's generally what I say, right? Because, um, you know, there's always technical risk. I'm okay to take earlier on if there's a strong technical founder, right? And I have to have the belief that he or she can, you know, understand the risk and kind of de-risk it themselves or kind of, you know, build out to technology because with all these things, you have some jump of faith. Right. And I think I could definitely have like, a lot of times I think it's easier for me to understand a product when there's a technical founder who might not have figured out the right pitch or the right message, but I can kind of right. understand where they're going with their product. So what problems do you see in the security VC world? A lot of times we talk to VCs and, um, or a lot of them are our friends and they kind of start ask us for our perspective on the security world. And I think, uh, a lot of times I tell them, I say, hey, the reason I spend so much time or you know, 60, 70% of my time on security investments or understanding the security space is that if you don't, it's very easy to get confused or kind of get lost in the security noise. And so I think there's a lot of VCs who want to invest in security, but don't put in the time and they want to take shortcuts. And 
I think for me, you know, maybe it's because I was a PhD student in the past. You have to take the right shortcuts, but a lot of times the shortcuts that VCs are taking, I don't think are the right shortcuts, right? And I think that's kind of the humor behind um, security VC logic is a lot of people think security companies will make them a lot of money and will help them return the fund. Uh, but at the same time, you don't put in the time and effort to really understand what's going on. And I think that's kind of one of the major problems. A lot of these VCs who invest in other areas are starting to look into security, but they're not spending sufficient amount of time and effort to really understand it. I mean, I think, you know, that's just, time is limited, right? I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just, but the humorous part comes out is when people take these shortcuts uh, and then it leads to disastrous results for them. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise, right? You kind of put in, uh, especially in, a, in an area that's evolving so fast, you have to put in the time. And so there's an interesting thing, um, especially at RSA this year, you know, like that a lot of early stage, I would say like early stage security companies, um, they use buzzwords and like lingo um, that don't necessarily have to mean a lot or kind of obfuscate what their company actually does into something like cooler. Um, is that a thing? I guess like, I guess how, how rampant is that type of phenomenon in this like fundraising landscape? I think it's pretty rampant. I think because all these startups are trying to differentiate themselves and uh, rise above the noise. But I think at the same time, I think a lot of these buzzwords are what people describe as table stakes. As in, you know, if you don't have these, there's no reason we should be considering you. Right. And so uh, I think when we talk to startups, we definitely try to kind of look under the covers is what I describe. Um, because but I think, you know, we spend a fair amount of time, Deepak and I, and we have another pro- uh, partner, Raman. We spend a fair amount of time in the security area and we kind of have deep relationships there. So I think it's easy for us to kind of under kind of sort kind of, you know, noise from what's actually there. So and so um, I guess on average, how many new companies are you talking to per week? Oh, so I think we probably it varies a lot per week, but I would say I'm probably at least talking to five to six companies at least a week, new companies a week. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, because I'm, I'm not only looking at security, but I think in terms of security, I'm looking at probably five. Um, and for kind of, I, I think there's what, 4,000 security companies out there. And so um, and for us to kind of like cover all those is, is we try to see everything and kind of figure out what interests us. But I think like a typical VC who covers everything talks to 20 to 25, but, you know, because we're very focused, we're probably talking to at least five. I mean, I, you know, we talk to other companies, enterprise infrastructure, like DevOps or blockchain or healthcare IT, or, you know, we have a broader um, initiative. And so some might come through my network in those areas, but I'm talking about these five. A week. Some weeks it could be as much as ten. I would say, in one year, I'd probably look at um, two hundred security companies or talk to two hundred unique security companies. Yeah. Um, have you seen any trends in twenty nineteen for early stage security companies that have started up? Um, personally, like one that I saw, um, you know, at RSA at the early stage sandbox area or like the innovation sandbox area, there's a lot of um, detecting or like protecting email through computer vision or machine learning or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I think like email security is always a big, has always been a big thing. Um, 
it's not really solved. You know, people still, if you think about the number one or number two ways um, an organization is hacked is through some form of phishing or solely credentials, right? And so those two are related, right? Because a lot of times a phishing email will lead to either malware or stolen credentials. And I think 80% of organizations are hacked that way. Um, and so that's kind of why I think it's still a big trend. It hasn't been solved. Uh, and I think it's only getting worse. It's getting very easy to automate emails um, and kind of launch these phishing attacks. I think another big trend we're seeing is that uh, people are, or organizations are in this hybrid cloud environment, which is they're partially in public cloud and partially in private and making a shift between, between both. Either they're going from private cloud to public cloud or from public cloud to private cloud. Uh, because large organizations at scale who started in the public cloud are now realizing, you know, Amazon's actually pretty expensive and they're moving to, to the private cloud. And kind of a lot of the companies undergoing um, a digital transformation are going from private cloud to public cloud. And, but, you know, they're not going to be fully on one. So they're kind of in this hybrid cloud world. And so they want security products that help them, you know, manage that migration, right? Because having a firewall in a data center you own is very different than having a firewall on AWS or on Azure. And kind of dealing with security policies uh, on an on-premise is very different than dealing on the public cloud. Just something very simple is that, before you might have had a hardware appliance in your data center that analyzed network traffic. Now you're on AWS, you cannot plug a hardware appliance into AWS because you don't own that cloud, right? So uh, that's a very simple example, but kind of there's a lot of these examples where kind of you're trying to do the security you used to do when you do the migration from private to public or vice versa, uh, just doesn't work. So you need a new solution. Okay, interesting. Um, so from what I understand from what you said, um, a lot of your work, um, you focus a lot on finding good founders. Um, do you see, or do you have any stories of any startup founder that you've met that has really impressed you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, all, all the companies we invest in, and many we, we just can't invest in for a number of reasons, um, right. or don't end up investing in for a number of reasons, are pretty impressive. I think the most, in terms of the founders we think nowadays that are more likely to succeed in security, this is more of kind of, now, there's always exceptions, and VC is all about the exceptions, right? But, you know, here are trends we see. We see a lot more of former heads of security, like CISOs, former heads of InfoSec, VP of um, head of, you know, data security or infrastructure security at companies going out and starting companies. And their ability to go to market faster is very impressive. And I think it's kind of related to the same thing as how we think about founders in that they have a certain amount of empathy and understanding of the buyer. Right. And I think that helps a lot because they can develop a product that actually solves a real pain point because they actually can empathize with that pain point as former people who used to do security. And so I think those founders are always very impressive because, you know, a lot of people say it's really hard to leave your old job. And for their old job, they actually spend a lot of time buying. Now they're switching to selling mode. And that's tough for them a lot of times because they can't 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 kind of can't sit back and choose. They have to go out and kind of sell. So um, I think those founders are usually pretty impressive, um, and their ability to kind of like sell their product as a startup so quickly is always very impressive for me. So speaking of like go to market, um, do you what are some strategies that you've seen for like successful security 
products that go to market? Um, so I, I think a couple of things. I think one big thing is that um, nowadays when you go to a company, um, most enterprises that you try to sell to, they have an incident response team. And the head of incident response now has a lot of influence in that organization because they're really the last line of defense. So that means like all other products had to be had to fail in order for an incident to occur, which needs remediation, right? And so when they have kind of the most visibility and most influence in the sense that they're saying, hey, these things in your line of defense failed, so we need X product as a result so that we don't see more incidents of this type. And so what I'm saying um, with that is that I think companies with a strong IR or incident response focus or incident response angle going to market convincing heads of incident response that their product is important and won't kind of overwhelm the SOC or their uh, incident response team, those tend to do very well in going to market. I think also another big thing is around kind of IT trends. So movement to the cloud. So those kind of having cloud native or um, cloud focused security products, those are always very interesting because I think companies want to buy those because they're undergoing the digital transformation. And so they want to buy a project and help them as they transition into the cloud so they don't have to buy a new product. What are some mistakes that you've seen early stage security companies make? Well, I so one of our partner, my partner Deepak, always likes to say this thing. He says, success has its own paths, but a failure is repeatable. <laughs> okay. So, um, and, and the reason I bring that up is that there are a lot of mistakes I think a company can make along the way. And some of them, you know, we can see right away. So one big thing is taking too much money at too high evaluation. It makes it very difficult for you to kind of raise another round. Uh, burning too much money on marketing just to try to get above the noise. Um, you know, hiring, uh, hiring too slowly or too fast, um, you know, just having the, having the wrong executive team. Right. And so those are some common ones. I'm sure if you, every VC kind of has horror stories and the list goes on, I think it's easier to make mistakes than it is to kind of like do the right thing. I think part of it is for us to kind of tell them, Hey, we think this is a mistake, but if you don't think so, then. You know, we've seen it happen like enough times to know this is definitely a mistake, right? And so kind of helping kind of companies navigate that. Gotcha. Do you have any personal horror stories? I, I don't have any personal horror stories yet. I don't think um, gotcha. my companies have gotten to that point yet. <laughs> so Okay. One day. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think yeah, one day. <laughs> so it's interesting because you said um, companies will burn too much money on marketing to kind of rise above the noise. Um, and at the beginning of this show, you know, we, we talked a little bit about why someone would want to buy a specific product, especially because, you know, there's so many different types of tools. And I guess, what are some other ways that a company can rise above the noise? Yeah, the I mean, I think it really depends on the company, but we have some basic strategies to kind of help companies. I think one thing is, um, I think general marketing is very expensive, but if you can do very targeting marketing, find the right communities, find the right areas to be a lot thought leadership, uh, thought leader in, I think that matters a lot. Um, so that's one way. I think another way is trying to get publicly referenceable customers from the fortune 500. 
um, and have kind of like be such a good product that, you know, it's people support you and very unique people tend not to support you, support you. So um, I, I think it really depends. I think for us, like we want really think the way to rise above the noise for a lot of the security companies is to have the, the right marketing techniques and, uh, and the right kind of ways to sell thought leadership. So whether that be working with industry research firms or winning industry awards, uh, you kind of have to have very targeted marketing. I see. So let's talk a little bit about uh, another thing that you're working on right now. Um, you say that you are a recovering academic and you publish a newsletter um, called Frankly Speaking. What is that about? What do you do? What do you write about? Yeah. So um, in that newsletter, I think I have, I divide into kind of three portions. I think the first portion is always try to write about um, an interesting research idea or technology, um, which I think is kind of lost upon people, especially when, you know, especially on people who work on products and that a lot of times you forget about the technology. We're very focused on kind of selling a product. And so I think it's interesting to kind of still talk about and learn about kind of interesting technique or technology that, you know, researchers have created. So I think one, like the first part of it is just kind of describing that and summarizing it and saying, hey, this is an interesting technology. Here are a couple of insights from this research paper that I recently read or I read in the past that I thought I wanted to share was top of mind for me that week. Um, a second thing is that I'll always have some, what I call like Frank thought, just because my name happens to be that, but it's usually kind of something random that's on my mind that week. It could be anything. Like last week I talked about, you know, technology versus product. You know, the week before I had kind of had thoughts on margins. Um, and so it can be anything. I think it's for me to kind of, I use that as kind of an area for where a lot of people kind of ask me the question you asked is that how is the transition from an academic to VC? And I think I, I get asked that question probably 99 out of a hundred times. <laughs> and so for me, I always give them this answer. I'm saying, I'm, I think the correct answer is I, I'm not fully transitioned. I'm still kind of, figuring it out. And I don't know if I'll ever figure it out, but at least, you know, here are kind of like thoughts I'm thinking about this week. And they're usually something along the lines of, Hey, here's, here's the difference between a technology and kind of the marketing around it, or, you know, what we care about as VCs versus what we care about as academics. And for me, kind of just this area where it's kind of like this reflection on, Hey, here are things, how I would have thought about things as an academic. Here are how I think should think things as a VC, but is there a middle ground? Um, I think that's kind of my chance. I won't have it every week, but I think it's my chance to kind of just write out my thoughts. I think of kind of, you know, just, you know, kind of my retrospective or kind of my reflection on kind of what's going on in my life and what I'm thinking about when I'm kind of like, feel like stuck between these two worlds where I'm not kind of what people describe as like a traditional VC um, profile, right? And so I, I think for me, I, I'm still kind of learning a lot along the way. Would you say that this is almost like a kind of like introspective type of like meditation on your current status type of thing? Yes, I think that's kind of a, a more elegant way of saying it. But I definitely, yeah, it's kind of my way of just thinking about and figuring out kind of what is the right way to 
be better at my job also, but also kind of more broadly about the industry and like, what should we be caring about? Uh, yeah. So that's kind of the second portion. And third portion is kind of this interesting links, both in research and security that I found interesting along the way that, you know, people read the newsletter come from all sorts, right? Some people come from academia, some people come from industry, some people start security companies, some people are in VC. So I things that I found interesting um, that aren't all, all on TechCrunch. So there'll be some stuff from research, there'll be some stuff from, you know, what's going on at Dell, there'll be some stuff uh, from Twitter, some stuff from Hacker News, some stuff from MIT and Stanford. So kind of like a mixture. I'm just trying to kind of create this unique newsletter where it's uh, kind of like see get get more into kind of what I'm thinking about, which I a lot of people ask me. It's I think it's hard to articulate in a two minute conversation or even an hour conversation about what I'm thinking on, which is constantly changing. Right. So where is your headspace at now? I think I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what's going to happen next in security and what's going to happen next in technology in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of technological shifts, both to hybrid cloud, blockchain is making a lot of noise. I think that's changing a lot of things. And so I'm trying to just figure out, hey, like what is the world going to look like IT-wise in the next five years? And right. what do we need to get there? And what needs to change in industry, right? right. And I think a lot of what I, I'm going to write about this, uh, and I'm not sure kind of if it'll be coherent enough to write about, I think there's a bigger focus on data. But I think kind of with all technologies, there's a reason why not everyone is using what we so-call data-driven approaches. I think data-driven approaches is important. I think AI ML is important. But I think there's, for everything you get, it creates more problems. And I think this is a thing that we forget time and time again with technology. And kind of what I'm describing is that, for example, initially people thought social media is this great thing. It's like connecting people better together, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're seeing the ramifications of that technology, you know, with kind of Facebook hacks, kind of the Russian interference in the election through Facebook, ads, by like heavily biased AI ML algorithms, uh, technology creating more income inequality potentially. And so, and leading to kind of inadvertent or unintentional discrimination. And so, I'm just trying to kind of think about, hey, like, why didn't we think of this before? And kind of think more thoughtfully or trying to get people to think more thoughtfully about what is the meaning of data-driven and what are the consequences we're going to face? Like, is this the right way to, right? Um, I think people are kind of very concerned about facts, and I think data presents them with facts, but with all facts, like, you know, as a researcher, as someone who used to be a researcher, yes, I agree. There are facts, there's data, but all that is up to interpretation. I think as a PhD student, I always really need is like, hey, you got data. The data itself doesn't matter as much. It's your interpretation of that data that matters and how you gather that data and the methodology behind it. It's way more complex than saying, like, here are facts. Yes, but those are facts, but there are also unobservable facts, right? And so... I think part of me is resolving. It's like, hey, we have all this data. We have all this information in general. Um, like, what does that mean for, what is that implication across the board, right? And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I think people are trying to find ways to, to, short, to find shortcuts. 
And are these shortcuts good or bad? Or is like automation good or bad? And what situations are they good and bad? I'm trying to think like, hey, I think people think we're in kind of like the first inning of AI ML, um, but what is the next inning going to look like? And how long is it going to take us to get there? And, you know, I think that's true of security too. I think security is the problems are only going to get worse, but like is what framework should I be thinking about this under? I mean, these are kind of just some very like disorganized thoughts, but I think that's been on my mind a lot. It's saying like, Hey, like the world is changing technologically very quickly with all these technologies. Like what are the implications? Like what should we watch out for? So do you see anything happening specific? Or do you see anything specific happening in cybersecurity that worries you? I mean, not not right now. I think kind of the thing that worries me the most is that there's just so much noise in cybersecurity. I think it's making an already hard job for CISOs and heads of security even harder because they spend all their time sorting through the noise than figuring out their security strategy. And a lot of times, I, I worry a lot of companies actually don't have a good security strategy, um, not because they chose not to, it's because one, there's just so much security noise that's driving them in different directions and causing them. It's kind of like, you know, you show up and you have information overload and you, the question is, should you give up or should you just pick one and give up? And that's kind of not the right way to go, right? And so I think that worries me a little bit is that, you know, people or organizations are just giving up and just going with whatever other people tell them because they just can't handle it. And I think that's not a good way to go. So there's no segue for this question. It's a question that I always ask on this show. Um, do you have any strategies to avoid burnout or for self-care? Yeah, I think this is a good question. As someone who's come from, um, from a PhD where I was kind of, you know, just there's my, there's my segue. a marathon, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> it's essentially like a marathon <laughs> for six years. And, you know, I, I think the important I, I'm taking kind of a lot of what I learned in my PhD with me here. It's I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, in an organization or even a VC for however small we are uh, trying to kind of like have the right strategies and spend, invest the time to kind of get other people to do some work for you when you're gone. So you can actually feel like you can take a vacation, right? And I think kind of like taking the right, taking, I think ultimately it comes out as like taking breaks, right? And I think some people have different ways of taking breaks and taking their mind off work, whether it's through exercise, through vacation, through other hobbies. And I think for me, it's kind of all of the above. It's like just having time to not think about work and to kind of just rest, right? I think that's pretty important. Um, uh, I think I'm getting a little bit better at taking vacations, just taking a week off, just doing something uh, that's not fully work-related or kind of getting into the, you know, kind of like the the sprints that we have to do every day, which is more than what I had to do in my PhD um, because kind of the cycles for funding are much shorter nowadays. It's kind of funding rounds happen in the course of a couple of months from kind of first meeting to closing. Um, and I think kind of a, a big part of that is also, you know, when you have the opportunity to take a break, you should, and you shouldn't try to give yourself more work. I mean, I think these are kind of broad philosophies I I, I go by. And again, another thing for me is like, hey, like, are there ways for me? I think another thing that's important, it's why I spend time on this newsletter, is that I think a thing that VCs, um, especially younger ones, 
um, they want to spend all their time kind of doing work and doing meetings um, and kind of meeting people and building the network. But I think one thing to not forget is that, which I had a lot more time in my PhD, is having creative time. And so I think I try to block out you know, days in my week or a day in a week or half a day in a week, or I try to the best of my ability to have what I call creative time, which is just like time for me to like read articles, read a book, um, read industry research, just kind of spend time thinking and not having kind of distractions of kind of meetings, right? And try to learn something new. I think that that's kind of an efficient use of time because it helps me focus on, hey, is this kind of a good use of my time or am I doing this stuff in the right way? Um, and I think that discipline just requires a lot of effort, <laughs> naturally. Uh, but those are a couple of things I do. I think it allows me to kind of like just be less kind of crazy about going to meetings, like running from event to event. But, you know, you have to do that sometimes, but you don't have to do it every day. So I know that, you know, I know that you said that uh, nine, 99 times out of 100, people always ask you um, what's it like transitioning from a PhD to security VC. So here's a different, I guess, uh, way to phrase this question that might be different. Um, what advice do you have for security engineers or uh, PhD security students um, for those who are interested in joining the VC world? What advice do you have for them um, to make that transition? Yeah, I... I don't know if I'm the best person to give this advice because I didn't actually want to make the transition. <laughs> I think one thing is that um, I think in VC, many times people have told me it's important to find your niche and kind of like play to your strengths. Right. And for me, and I don't try to be anyone you aren't. I think there's a lot of people who want to go into VC and try to fit into a VC profile. But I think the most interesting perspectives you'll have while looking at companies and industries is kind of like what you know best. I think like the, the PhD really gave me kind of the confidence to kind of speak up and say, Hey, I have this belief in this technology or in this product. And here are my reasons. Like they might not be well formulated, but I have this intuition based on these other factors and, you know, I want to go figure it out. And I think everyone should kind of, you know, that perspective was very good because I came kind of from a, you know, I wanted to, I had like a technology kind of theoretical and practical perspective on kind of what things, I had a good intuition for what things could work in theory versus what things could work in practice. And, you know, I focused on security. And so I think it's important to kind of like have a niche and kind of like use your strengths and go to kind of tangential areas. Cause I think it's just easier. So like for me, a natural transition was like now looking at blockchain companies or like companies doing development tools for blockchain because you know my PhD was in distributed systems and secure. So it's easy to kind of make that kind of slight transition into something that's kind of adjacent, right? And so, um, but kind of a lot of it is just, I think ultimately what matters in VC is making sure you have a good network of people and kind of like having a very unique skill set um, that gives you a, a, a unique perspective that maybe others will have, but very few others will have. And that'll kind of give you an unfair advantage in kind of when you look at companies. Mm -hmm. um, so I know as a VC, um, or at least from my side of just hearing about it and like, you know, reading about it, um, that, you know, not every company works out. Um, only a portion of a portfolio will actually exit. Um, I guess my question is, how do you deal with being wrong? I, I think 
you just kind of accept the facts that <laughs> you're wrong. Um, and uh, kind of like, you know, it, it's kind of the past, right? And I think what's important is with all things that go wrong is why were you wrong? And a lot, I think if you talk to a lot of people who do investments, like even investment bankers, especially, um, or people who do uh, investment in a different financial kind of setting, is that um, a lot of times there are things out of your control which make you wrong. And that's okay. And I think it's important for, as long as you're investing for the right reasons, I think it's, in my opinion, it's okay to be wrong. Because when things from out of your control happen, then that's that's kind of, that's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. It's, it's kind of the nature of investing. You take a risk and you won't be right every time, right? And so um, I think it's important to kind of like understand that fact um, in a sense. And that's how I kind of reconcile this. Was it wrong for reasons I can control? If yes, then um, how do I make sure I'm not wrong for that fact in the future and not over-rotate? Uh, and what did I learn from it? And if it's wrong for reasons outside my control, like the market never emerged, well, that's kind of like a risk that you have to be comfortable taking as a VC. Okay, so final question. Um, throughout your experience running Cybersecurity Factory as a PhD student and being a VC at Dell Technologies Capital, uh, what is one lesson, what is one really important lesson you have learned throughout your time doing everything? This might seem like a simplistic lesson, but I think it's kind of lost upon us recently as kind of, no, I don't want to seem like old or anything, because by my by no means old. But um, but when I was kind of doing computer science, it was kind of around the time where um, you know, Facebook was only about a hundred million users, um, Snapchat didn't exist, and Instagram had just started. And kind of like we live in a very different world. And I think um, back in the day, it was kind of a more tight knit group of people who were, were interested in, in computer science and in computer technology, um, and so. But now kind of like the world has gotten bigger and there's kind of a lot more stuff going on. Technology people have more influence. But I think the fundamental thing is, you know, I think what's kind of gone away a little bit is that there's a lot more focus on kind of hype and um, excitement and kind of like trying to be the best. But I think the human aspect is kind of like been lost upon us. Like, you know, we're still people in this IT revolution, right? And I think it's important, you know, for me, especially now as a VC, it's like, I always want to treat founders or people in my network in the way I want, I personally want to be treated. Um, I think that seems like very simple advice, um, but I think it's a thing that, you know, when a lot of these things around kind of increase your top line, increase your bottom line, all these things around technical aspects, like people, again, forget that they're like humans behind. Right. It's like humans are operating these and we are people who do things and but we have people who have lives outside of technology. Right. And so uh, I think the human aspect of it is in technology is kind of like I think it's getting a little bit lost, but I think it's still just as important. I think that's kind of part of what was important in kind of for me doing PhD is it's always about the people. It was like the people I was doing research with. The startups I was working with, the start uh, and cybersecurity factory. It's kind of the executives and startups I work with as a VC. I think like you know, ultimately at the end of the day, there are still like people behind all the technologies we have. And it's like important to kind of like treat them as kind of people. And I think that's I think 
important. I think it will become more important kind of in the future. That's interesting because, you know, like we were talking about earlier that you look for, you know, like emotional intelligence in your founders just because like that type of being empath, being empathetic to like pain points and people is so important um, to the company's success. But cool. Um, so Frank Wang, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdoms, uh, shout outs, anything? Uh, if you're doing an early stage company in security, feel free to email me. <laughs> And if you want to know what's going on in my mind, uh, sign up for my newsletter, uh, frankly speaking. How do they find those things? Um, they can find all the information actually on my personal website, which is frankwang.org. So you can sign up for my, there's a link to my newsletter there. And then there's also my email address. Hey there. Thanks for listening. As Frank said, you can check out his work at frankwang.org. His newsletter, Frankly Speaking, is chock full of thoughtful insight on both security and venture capital. And if you're an early stage security startup, definitely shoot him an email. And you can check us out at hackerculture.fm. That's hackerculture.fm. This episode was recorded and mixed by me. Special thanks to Frank for an awesome conversation, and we wish him the best at Dell Technologies Capital. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM. If you like the episode, consider leaving it a review on Apple Podcasts or leave me a message on Anchor. And don't forget to tune in next week on wherever you listen to podcasts.